when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the new year, 2020. We're going to kick some ass this year, both in the podcast and in your lives. Hopefully, I can help with that. And uh, today, we're talking about a question that's come up quite a bit in the uh, questions that I get from listeners and my personal work with the uh, trial attorneys that come out and work with me. And that is... If you are on the lookout for your ideal juror, won't identifying that person both to yourself and to the group and to, more importantly, opposing counsel, won't that make it so that they get kicked off? You know, I see this quite a bit in listservs or CLEs and things and books I read that this is a big concern is that when you are going and you find a good juror, we need to hide them so that nobody else will know who they are and then they won't get kicked off. And I'm here to say that I don't think this is a good strategy, uh, first off, and I don't think that it works, (laughs) secondly. And third, I don't think you need to be worried about it. So let's talk a little bit about that today because uh, I think this is something that those of you who are really buying into my method, if I were even call it a method, but my philosophy, let's put it that way that uh, we're really sh- we really should be looking for our ideal jurors instead of trying to figure out who our quote-unquote badgers are and get rid of them and then just deal with whoever's left. This has come up as a concern for you. You're like, I, I get this, sorry, and I'm buying this totally, but won't identifying them mean they get kicked off? Okay, so let's talk about some of the practical things of, of why I believe hiding them won't work. And then we'll talk about what to do instead. First off, as, as much as we'd like to think that opposing counsel doesn't know what the hell they're doing and that they aren't as smart and savvy as we are, and that is often the case, sure, um, they're not dumb. They're not stupid. They know who the good jurors are. And I don't think that you can necessarily hide that uh, from from them or anyone else. So that whole idea of not um, really bringing them to the forefront is something I don't even think is possible. I mean, yes, you can, you know, not ask them as many questions once you find out what they believe. Uh, Sure, but I think you're missing out on some things when you do that. Now, all of this, by the way, is couched in the admonition that timing is everything. Every case is different. Every wadir is different. So I'm not saying always do this or never do that. What I am saying is that We need to look at this at more of a macro level of what it is that you're attempting to do and why you don't need to be afraid of showing the other side, (coughs) if that's what we're talking about, excuse me, that who the ideal jurors are. And here's why. It really comes down to the power of group dynamics, okay? You know that I am, or maybe you don't know, so you will know now, that I am a group dynamics junkie. This is literally my favorite part 
of the work that I do is understanding how groups operate, how they get formed, what you can do to leverage that to your advantage. I read about it all the time. I study it. I have studied it extensively. I am one of the, if not the foremost expert in group dynamics in trial in the United States. This is my specialty. This is why I so hammer hard the importance of voir dire in the trial process because I believe it is the place where everything gets set up to support you throughout trial. Now, those jurisdictions that don't have voir dire are obviously missing out on this huge component. That doesn't mean all is lost. Uh, but what I will say is that Wadir has tremendous impact on your trial because foremost uh, and, and a priority, the group dynamic aspect and the power of group dynamics. Now, here's how this plays out in terms of why you shouldn't be afraid of I, recognizing, identifying, whatever the word we want to use, your ideal juror. We have to go back a little bit. And if you've been reading from Hostage to Hero, you know that there is a portion of that where I start one of the chapters. I can't remember off the top of my head which chapter it is. Um, talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, actually, I think it is the chapter where I introduce, it's the introduction to the four steps in the From Hostage to Hero process or formula. I hate to use the word formula. It's not really a formula. Let's use process in the From Hostage to Hero process. And if you're not familiar with Maslow, uh, I think it's Abraham. Gosh, I wrote this and now I can't remember his first name. But Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs is this um, theory that proposes that unless needs are met in a certain order, um, we can't access the other needs. So the first need for all humans are physiological. So do we have shelter? Do we have food? Do we have water? Okay. So those are the basic needs that need to be met before we can move up the bridge, so to speak. And the reason that I, I talk about this in the book is because I'm using this as a metaphor for the four steps that you need to do or use to move jurors from hostage to hero. They must also go in order. So the second step in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or the second need, I should say, is the need for safety. So once our physiological needs are met, meaning we are able to live, breathe, because we've got water, air, uh, food, shelter, clothing, then the second need is safety. That's the need to protect ourselves from harm. Now, once we feel safe, the third need in the, in the hierarchy is the need for belonging. And that's really what we're going to talk about today in this podcast episode. And then after we have a sense of belonging, we can then attend to our needs of self-esteem. And then at the very top of the hierarchy is our need for self-actualization. Now, if you look at the, the four steps in the From Hostage to Hero model, it's very interesting how many of these line up with that, in that the first step in the From Hostage to Hero model is to introduce safety. So, of course, in court, we are not particularly uh, focused on uh, meeting the physiological needs of jurors, although they will need to have access to bathrooms and be fed and 
uh, it would be better for us if they weren't so tired and overwhelmed. <laughs> but that is not a need that we can particularly meet. So the first meet, need we meet is safety. And if I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that here. You can go back to the book and read why that's true. It's really tied into the idea that jurors are hostages, which is the first thing you need to recognize before you can even begin to think about moving them from, from hostage to hero is that to recognize they are hostages in the first place. And then if we go to the second step, which is to invite engagement, that's really the step of belonging. Once you get jurors engaged with you and the content, you're also getting them engaged with each other. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. But if you also think about it, the uh, uh, part where you inspire commitment, which is the third step in the model, there's the word, the model, um, that really speaks to that self-esteem piece in Maslow's hierarchy, does it not? I mean, that's where the jurors are starting to feel like, I can commit to this case, I believe in these ideas and these principles, and then once you get to incite action, the fourth step, that really matches up with Maslow's hierarchy, which is the self-actualization. Not only do I have a belief in these things, but now I can actualize it, I can take action, I can make them come true, I can act on my beliefs. So the hierarchy really does play in well with the four steps from hostage to hero. The point I'm trying to make, though, is that when we look at human needs, you know, basically survival, safety, belonging, self-esteem, and self-actualization, belonging is number three. It's huge. And in fact, if you go and you read a lot about um, this hierarchy, you'll recognize that sometimes belonging is so important that it often can usurp, I'm not sure if I said that right, the need for safety. I mean, think about this in terms, as sad as this is, of children who cling to abusive parents. The need for belonging is so hardwired in us as humans. And I think we forget this as trial attorneys, as we're looking at this group. I mean, think about it. What we are asking jurors to do in the trial process is a group activity And yet we spend little or no time actually forming the group. You know, as I've said before, a group is not a group until and unless you form them. Merely gathering people together and even, you know, choosing certain people to do this thing that we're going to ask them to do doesn't make them a group. You have to form them into a group in order to get them to act in a group dynamics situation. Otherwise, you just have a bunch of individuals fighting for status. I mean, if we go back to the SCARF model, which you've heard me talk about, and if you haven't, go back to the first five or six podcasts in this, or episodes in this podcast. The SCARF model by David Rock is the whole idea that we reward or punish the brain based on five factors. The first one is status. So people have a need for status, and when we don't form the group and there aren't clearly identified roles, who's the leader, who's the liaison, who's the outlier, what's the culture, so on and so forth, then when you get back into the verdict room, what ends up happening is a battle for status or power, which research shows, in fact, I just found a study from Stanford University that research shows that when that happens, that people tend to make a poorer decision than than otherwise. So if you put a bunch of people in a room and all they care about is who has the most power, the decision-making decreases, the power of the decision-making, the quality of the decision-making. 
Now, the reason why I bring all of this up is that if we go back to our original topic here, which is the idea that if I focus on finding my ideal juror and I, I end up identifying them, won't that mean the other side will kick them off? And the answer to that is probably. And the other answer I have, or the other comment I want to make on that is, so what? Here's what you have to keep in mind, is that when you form the group in voir dire, you create a thing, a group, and that becomes way more important than the actual individuals that make up that group. Meaning, if you do a good job in creating this group that is rallying around the principles in your case and identifying those principles and owning them as their own, that starts to create this group culture. We have such a sense of wanting to belong that when you are good at this, when you start to create this group and you start to identify what this group believes in and the principles that they rally behind, that then creates this culture of this is what this group is about. This group believes in accountability or responsibility or that hospitals jobs are to keep people safe, not harm them or whatever the principle in your case is. And now as groups, that group, the other side comes in and starts to question the individual jurors. And this is where you really have an advantage because you get to go first. So you get to form the group and get them rallying around the principles in your case and creating a group culture. When the other side comes in and starts to peck away at the individual jurors in there, they're going to have a really hard time for two reasons. One, yes, they may be able to get some of those people off, okay? But as new people come into the box, the standard has been set. The standard is, you want in this group? You got to believe these things. And, and here's what I think you don't you don't recognize is that people have a huge need to belong. And if you take what I said three or four podcasts ago about how the case is never about your client, it's about the principle in your case, this isn't a hard thing to do. When you really find the principle, and remember, principles are things across the board that nearly all of us believe and support, okay? For example, fairness is a big one. As I said in that podcast, even criminals believe in fairness. Fairness is not a value. It's not something that uh, we choose that some of us believe and some of us don't. It's a principle. It's something, it's a bedrock of what it means to have the, the human experience. So every case has a principle that you can align with. And once you find what that is, your job now is to go into jury selection and get jurors rallying around that idea and create a group culture around that idea, which means that you really aren't looking for your ideal juror. You're looking for your ideal group. That's really what we're talking about here. Yes, when you create your ideal juror profile, I think I have an episode on that. You can go back and look at how to do that. This is the person, quote unquote, you're looking for, but this is really the group. I mean, I want you to expand your view of that now. These are the people 
I am looking for, the people that believe these things. And you will find quite quickly when you start rallying the group around these ideas that your outliers will become quite clear. There will be people who fall outside of those norms. And I've seen this in literally the thousands of mock juries that I have conducted and the real ones that I have watched is that this sense of belonging is it's there even without you trying to do anything with it. This is what this is the opportunity that you're missing is that one juror will talk about something Okay. And another juror will say, well, it's kind of like what she said. And they'll turn and they'll look at the juror because they're trying to create this sense of belonging. It's just hardwired, which means all you need to do is leverage and play with that. And yet, most of you are so focused on individual jurors and individual voir dire and going juror by juror and interrogating them and asking what their hobbies are and wasting time. Instead of standing in front of this group and creating a group dynamic that is about what the group wants and creating this sense of belonging and saying, non-verbally at least, that this group believes in X and if you do not believe in X, you are an outlier, which means the opposing counsel can kick off as many jurors as they want, but it's going to be hard to go against the group dynamic. Because the group now belongs, b- believes these things. And new people coming into the box have watched this in many cases, not in all your jurisdictions, but it will become clearly obvious as new people come in that this group already believes certain things. So either get in line or you're an outsider and no one wants to be an outsider. So that's the part that I really want you to focus on when we're talking about this fear of, oh my gosh, if I, if I get these good jurors and I, and I let the other side know that they're good jurors, then they're going to kick them off. <laughs> Listen, if you try to hide these people, then what you're doing is you are limiting your ability to create the print, the rallying around the principle, right? We don't want to shut these people down. What we want to do is facilitate a conversation amongst the group around these principles. Doesn't mean you have to stick with one person and totally solidify in, in the mind of the opposing counsel, this is your favorite juror ever. That's not what I'm saying. But what I don't want you to do is shut down a conversation that could assist you in forming the group around these ideas, because that's really how groups are formed. Groups are formed in two ways, non-verbally, which is a completely different uh, podcast episode that I need to do. And, and in fact, it's hard to talk about group formation uh, without visuals. So that's why I suggest, and that's why so many of you do come out to the Wadir studio, because we talk a lot about group dynamics there, and you can actually see this uh, happening in real time. But That's one way we form groups. And the other way we form groups is through this shared connection, this shared experience, this this facilitating of the conversation of it sounds like the experience you had is very similar uh, to the experience this juror had. Is that true? And and they start to, to look over their shoulder. Yeah, I would say it's really similar. I mean, it's different in this way. And then someone else says, yeah, I had that experience too. And now we start creating this sense of belonging, which, you know, also will help create that sense of safety that we're trying to to create for the jurors and meet that need. So all of that to say, my friends, please don't get overly focused on, oh my gosh, is, you know, 
figuring out who my ideal juror is and asking questions around that and building my juror, my uh, voir dire around that, isn't that just going to backfire and get them kicked off? If it does, so what? Because this isn't about the individuals. This is about the group. And when you have a group that is ready to do some awesome shit because you have done voir dire and issue-oriented voir dire, which is what I always suggest you create, talking about principles and big ideas and things that they get to decide, this feeds so many of their needs and they now come together to not just belong, but to do this great thing. It doesn't matter about the individuals anymore. I mean, this is the same thing I talk about when we talk about shutting down a very talkative juror. <laughs> my attorneys are always saying, oh my God, how can you do that? It's just, it's so rude. I said, it's not rude if the group wants you to do it. Meaning when you form the group, and there's this highly talkative juror that's talking more than everybody else. What they're what they're communicating is I am not a part of the group culture. I'm not I'm the outlier. And you always have the opportunity to shut down the outlier because the group gives you permission to do so. And in fact, if you don't, you risk alienating the group. So it's important that you definitely shut down that person. You got to get out of your head if let me say this, if you want to get good at group dynamics, you have to get out of your head that what you want or what individual jurors want is what's important. That's not what's important. It's what does the group want? It's all about creating this group dynamic because then it's like creating this armor, this bulletproof vest that no one can get through. Once you get that dynamic going, which is why I spend so much time talking about it, writing about it, uh, training you on it when you come out to Portland, you're good to go. That's your silver bullet. Is it hard to do? Yes. Yes, it is. That's why you have to learn the other steps first. You have to learn how to get jurors talking. You have to learn how to create safety for them. You have to learn how to get out of your own fucking head so you can focus on this group in front of you, which is why you've heard me say, if Wadir feels hard, like you're working really hard at keeping this conversation going, you're doing it wrong. You got to get to the point where Wadir is flowing easily, effortlessly, so that you don't have to focus on just merely getting a conversation going. Now you get to get behind the curtain and start forming this group because that inoculates you against so many of the things that you're worried about. All righty. Well, I hope this answered questions. Maybe it posed more questions. <laughs> Maybe it made you more confused. I hope that's not the case. But I'll be talking more and more about group dynamics in 2020 because it's just one of my favorite subjects. Come out and visit us. We've got a few seats left in our April Wadir studio. You can find information about that at sorrydlm.com. On the events tab, uh, we won't be offering Wadir again until the fall. So... Take your opportunity now to come on in, in April. We sold out February before we even started the year. All right, my friends, lovely being with you as always. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode of From Hostage to Hero. But head to our website, sorrydlm.com, for other must-have resources from Sorry Delamart. Read the transcript of this podcast, watch trial tip videos, or download your free copy of Sari's article, Why Jurors Hate the Hobby Question. We're glad you joined us today. And until next time, remember that to lead a hostage to freedom, you must first free yourself.